welcome to Additive Insight, the original additive manufacturing podcast, your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and AM intelligence. I'm your host, Laura Griffiths, and today I'm joined by our editor, Sam Davis, and for the last time, Daniel O'Connor. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Today is a special episode of Additive Insight, as next week we'll be saying farewell to our head of content and friend, Dan, as he leaves us for a great new career opportunity. Do you want to say where and who you're leaving us for, Dan? I appreciate being called a friend, Laura. That's very nice of you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm heading off to uh, National Museums Liverpool to be their digital editorial lead. It is with a uh, heavy heart that I'm leaving the AM industry, but uh, I think as we'll get into a little bit later, it's something that I'm quite passionate about. And so uh, we can only be half mad that you're leaving us then because it does sound like an amazing opportunity and very, very you, as you said, we're going to talk a little bit about why that is later on. But it does mean that today is the last time all three of us will be joining from our laptop screens or any scruffy trade show floors to talk about the latest goings on in the AM industry. And so we figured we'd do things a little bit differently. We're going to do a bit of a walk down memory lane and have a laugh and a look back at Dan's first article, uh, 3D printed stories that were trending at the time and just how things have changed really since Dan first entered TCT Towers in 2013. But first, a word from our sponsors, Ultimaker. Ultimaker are a manufacturer of desktop extrusion-based 3D printers that can help streamline your workflow and save you time and money. Ultimaker printers offer industrial grade material options backed by an extensive materials alliance program and they're also paired with trusted Cura slicing software which recently surpassed a milestone of 2 million users. For the decade in the additive manufacturing industry, Ultimaker machines have been used by a wide range of industrial customers for a range of applications. For more info, click the link in the description or visit mytct.co forward slash ultimakerpod. Does it feel a bit weird to be the interviewee today? It does, yeah. I think we need to point out as well that we are not. I'm not leaving a void. You are a very capable new head of content, and Sam is now senior content producer. Is that right? <laughs> I'm sure that one. <laughs> Thank you very much. We we appreciate your vote of confidence, and uh, we will we will do you proud. Thanks. I'll be paying close attention. <laughs> will you? Will you really? <laughs> well, while juggling two two small children and a full time new full time job, I'm not sure uh, I will be able to pay as much attention to 3D printing news as I once did. But nevertheless, I'll endeavour to catch up of a weekend, perhaps. Perhaps instead of going to a museum of the weekend, now I'm working in museums. I'll be catching up on the 3D printing news of a weekend instead. Well, you know what you can do instead, Dan. You can just subscribe to the Additive Insight newsletters of all the best news stories of the week delivered straight to your inbox by subscribing at tctmagazine.com. Very smooth, Laura. Smooth. And that's why I'm head of content. <laughs> um, so, Dan, we figured we would start by just talking about some of the very first articles that you wrote when you started at TCT. Please don't. And... <laughs> we were talking the other day about the fact that uh, you, when you got the job, you had to write um, a bit of a kind of, um, I guess, a test article for when you did your interview. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and kind of the things that you thought were impressive at the time, which I'm guessing we will probably laugh at you for writing about now? Well, I mean, I stand by all of it. But um, essentially, my point was that we've become excited in the world about digital things and things that don't exist. And that's what really excites us. But what really used to excite me when I was young was the thought of the Flintstones inventions coming to life. So, you know, a bird that can play a record, that would have been really good. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last thing that really impressed me before that was a, um, I got a toaster that also poached an egg at the same time. What was really good about that is that you could make, it would, didn't just poach eggs, it did boil them as well. So you could have it set so that you boil the eggs and the toast pops up 30 seconds before so you can butter and slice your toast into soldiers. But what my point was that we'd become excited about like um, digital things where I was excited about tactile things and 3D printing I saw as a tactile technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think my research was, I, before I wrote it, I did a couple of YouTube searches and remembered that there was something on QI that was 3D printed. I later found out that that was... Um, 3D printed and SLS by Shapeways, not that I was to know that at the time. Um, But yeah, it just felt exciting that we could have this possibility of all of these new inventions thanks to this different invention, which, you know, I wasn't aware of at the time, but was 
actually really old and people have been using it for ages. And did you manage to avoid mentioning any Star Trek replicator references in this very first article? I think I might have done because I didn't really know what Star Trek replicator was until I started at TCT. Not that kind of geek. Okay. No, I wasn't ever really into Star Trek, but I mean, <laughs> so I think it was. It's only through three D printing that I know what the Star Trek replicator is, which is probably a strange um, turning of its head. And so when I was looking through before we got on this call today, I was just kind of on a flick through uh, stories in 2013 just to find out what were the main trending topics back then. And maybe people won't remember this or won't know this about TCT, but um, we had our TCT plus personalized brand at the time, which was very much focused on the consumer side of 3D printing, which was really kind of coming to the forefront at the time. And just looking through past articles, I mean, it was stories about how you could buy a 3D Systems Cube and Curry's and Harrods and it was the year of the Dita Von Teese first 3D printed dress and um, Makeup Art Acquired by Stratasys. You're also, your career in 3D printing, Dan, is the same age as the Ultimaker 2. Um, so lots of different stories are kind of around that um, consumer-led kind of like desktop 3D printing technology. I mean, we did actually look back at one of your first articles, which was um, Valentine's Creations. I think you could make for your loved one if you were last minute, very non-thoughtful kind of other half. When I said, please don't look back through my articles, I should have gone through in the uh, back end and deleted it out of the CMS. But, um, yeah, I think, like, interestingly, I kind of took it down, a personalised down a path of, you know, about being the consumer 3D printers. And I think that the idea in the first place was it was a bit more about consumer 3D printing. So this idea of mass customization, the likes of Shapeways and Iron Materialized, making products specified mm-hmm. to you. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, that Valentine's Day one was kind of like me trying to copy a BuzzFeed style article, like a listicle. Uh, and, you know, try and look at different things that you could get from the Internet. And, uh, you know, you could either 3D print them yourselves or order them. Um, that was kind of the content I was brought in to do, I suppose. I mean, I don't know how much anybody cares but or anybody knows, but I came from uh, a background of reality television. So I was working on The Only Way as Essex before I started at um, Rapid News. So I was much less, I was brought in to try and like beef up the social media and the consumery led sides, whereas Rose Brook, who was also started at the same time as me, was doing the like more um, industry focused financial um, strategic articles on TCT magazine. Those lines obviously kind of blurred later in the days when, uh, and actually I think it was because of like a grounding in those consumer 3D printers. I used to do this thing called Thingy Thursday, mm-hmm. which is difficult for me to say because I can't pronounce it with THs correctly. <laughs> um, but it was, we had a couple of 3D printers in the office that we'd been loaned to review. And I used to just pick things off and print them. And, and I kind of learned what the machines were about that way. I learned that those early machines were very frustrating uh, and that, you know, it wasn't as easy as just getting out of the box and 3D printing it as some of the marketing would have you believe. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly bed leveling was something I learned, had to learn pretty quickly. Uh, I learned about extrusion jams pretty quickly. And those kind of like, almost like the grounding in that, I think helped me understand what the technologies were about and what they could and couldn't do later on. Yeah. Uh, you know, I still on occasion try to 3D print something uh, and still have the same frustrations as I did then. So I don't think I've overly improved as a uh, 3D printing operator, but I certainly have understood the become a better journalist because of almost. So me and Sam are going to take it in turns now to just be the interviewer and just put you on the spot and ask you about your favourite things and how you think the industry has changed. Sam, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, so it's since those kind of early days, um, <clears throat> focusing on the, the kind of consumer side of the 3D printing, um, we, we were wondering whether you could take us through some of your um, your favourite pieces to work on and, and maybe tell us sort of why they are your favourite pieces to work on. Well, I suppose that even though I came with this kind of like fluffy background of reality television and uh, BuzzFeedy like listicles, but like BuzzFeed, I kind of straight away veered towards the investigative journalism side of things. Um, there was a company called Massive Dynamics who 
were putting out a press release a day, almost in the midst of all of the 3D printing hype. And it was they were dropping names like Apple, um, and they were saying that they were based in Cupertino, California, next to Apple's HQ. They were saying that they were going to lead the 3D printing consumer revolution, etc. And it was they were putting out so many press releases that immediately I started to become a bit skeptical about who they were. Uh, so myself and Rose Brook, we kind of like tore it to shreds put it that way it turned out to be a penny stock scam which is something that i didn't know about until that we were like looking at their virtual offices and that was really fun to do that um obviously we have to like make sure everything was perfect because we really were doing a takedown of this company and um of a guy who's running the company called oscar hines it turned out just to be like this you basically put out a load of press releases and hope somebody invests in your company but it's such a low level but because 3d printing didn't really have anything like that at the time quite legitimate news sources were picking it up and running with their stories. I remember that they said that crazily said that they had the license to 3D print all Felix the Cat products. Nobody really knew who Felix the Cat was. I didn't think anymore. It was a really weird <laughs> thing that was to pick, but I think they picked it because it was slightly out of copyright or something like that um, so that they couldn't get sued. And it was this like stupid penny stock scam which disappeared as quickly as it came. And I'm not sure whether... Rose and I's articles had anything to do with that. I think they may have just been doing it to, you know, a pump and run. I think some people call it just like a get out of town quickly with a little bit of money. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, there were a couple of things like that. One of them, um, I'm not really allowed to go into because I end up having to take down um, off our website because of a cease and desist letter. But maybe I got maybe maybe I got a few things wrong within that article. Uh, so that was a learning curve too, but you know, I appreciated that Rapid News backed me in that and like came gave me a, you know, a better ground in how to be a better journalist. Almost is to make mm-hmm. sure that you fact track these things correctly. And I think that I like to think that that's what stands TCT apart from anything else. We don't just you know get a press release and put it out there. We at least un- you know get to grips with it. We understand it, fact check it a little bit. Uh, and you know, I um I said this to you guys before but i'd like to think of tct as almost like the news night of additive manufacturing we like to do analysis and interviews and uh, really take an in-depth look at the news and that's what you know jim who was my boss at the time jim woodcock he was he really allowed us to do that he didn't want us to just chase after this press release press release press release press release mm-hmm. um the, the churn the daily churn so at the time that was really good to work on that massive dynamics story but also at the other side of it rather than the takedown things I was always really excited to see like new companies spring to life and uh, one of the earliest trips I did was I traveled around the lowlands and I visited Materialize I visited a company called 3D Point um, just like visiting all these little companies and two of the companies I actually visited early on were 3D Hubs who were based in this little tiny a startup thing called Rockstart. There was about six of them working there at the time. Um, and obviously we've got seen what they've gone on to become. And the other one was Ultimaker. I mm. um I had the you know pleasure of seeing Ultimaker in when they were building wooden 3D printers in a farm in Utrecht. And to see what they are as a company now is really, really like cool because at the time they were very welcoming and um it, it kind of felt that they I went to a few of these like maker meetings and they were the like makers 3D printer mm-hmm. at the time. It was them and Lulzbot uh, who were like popular with those guys in that open source community. And they've kind of stayed true to that value of open source at the same time as moving into an industrial world and being considered a printer that's suitable for applications at Ford, at Heineken, at VW and all of those things that we've seen them do now. So it's been really interesting to see the progress of like somebody like Ultimaker, and I like to think that my progress at TCT, you mentioned that, you know, I'm as old as the Ultimaker too. I like to think of my progress like that, as that I started out at this like maker level and then ended up covering more of the industrial side of things. Um, yeah. And also like some of my favorite things to cover over the period past time have been how the little guys have been using these machines to do things that are um, unique um there's a guy that i follow on linkedin called brian stofield he's um he's a an eccentric inventor put it that way 
Um, but he was talked to me about how he was using a $150 3D printer to make the uh, fuel injection nozzle, nozzle rockets for CubeSats that he was going to send up in weather balloons. Uh, and I just find those kind of like things really interesting. Uh, obviously, at the time, RoboHand was a big thing and the eNable project. So it was all about that kind of, I don't want to use that buzzword, but the democratization of design that really mm-hmm. interested me early on. I suppose you came in at a really good time because it was when we were seeing this kind of influx of these cheaper desktop 3D printers. And I think you really had to be quite aware of um, kind of wading through some of the the noise because there were so many Kickstarters. I mean, even when I started a a year later, every single day, I felt like I was getting at least one one email from a Kickstarter with with a, a new cheap 3D printer. So you really had to be able to see which ones were actually doing the job and, and, and kind of follow up on, on how they were doing. And you mentioned a company like Ultimaker there. It must be really nice to still be to be in the industry at this point now and see how far they've come. You know, they've been used by so many industrial companies. We, we make reference to, to, to Ultimaker all the time. So it must be nice to have sort of grown up with, with those companies as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on the point of Kickstarter, we used to use Kickstarter as a news gathering source. So mm-hmm. it, it, there would be that many 3D printers and 3D printed things on Kickstarter that you you would check it almost on like an hourly basis to make sure that you weren't missing like the latest invention. And I can't rem- remember the last time I looked at Kickstarter now, to be honest. And I'm sure there are still 3D printed things on there, but uh, I don't think that any of us use it as a news gathering source anymore. I don't imagine. Do you, Sam? No, but I would have done in the in the maybe the first year or so so this month i've been with tct for four years so maybe yeah probably That's not crazy around 2017 that is crazy yeah um but yeah not not since the first month, so i wouldn't have thought um and i like laura i don't get too many emails saying you know we're 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 trying to fund a, a 3d printing company on on kickstarter or any of the other kind of crowdfunding platforms you thought about your, your touring around companies like Materialize and, and Ultimaker and doing this kind of road trip around all these um, these startups at the time. And I know something you're really going to miss about this job is the travel. And I know that us three do our first year of moaning about jet lag and things like that. But it is something that we've always um, enjoyed. And it's really nice when you get to go out and see how these companies work, get to do factory visits and, of course, get to go to trade shows and all these like, amazing events that we get to go to. So I just wonder what are some of the kind of the the best stories you've covered while you've been out on the road and are there any kinds of places that you are going to miss in particular? I will absolutely miss travel. I think that uh, strangely weird at the, I've become quite a good traveler. I think now I'm, I feel like sometimes I'm like George Clooney in the airport, except for a really scruffy scouse one. Um, (laughs) But like, I think early on in my uh, career at TCT magazine, there used to be something called the curse of O'Connor. Mm-hmm. which was that was always a mishap if I was traveling with you. So just not travel with me, which, you know, ended up suiting me quite a lot because I quite like traveling on my own. But, <laughs> um, you know, I had one memorable mishap that I've told on quite a few occasions is that we went to Rapid um, in Orlando. I don't remember mm-hmm. what year this was actually thinking about it, but were you there, Laura? Was that one of your <laughs> first ones? This, I think this was my first rapid. Was this twenty fifteen? Right. Okay. No, oh, sorry. This, this is my second rapid. Okay. Well, basically, we flew out to Orlando, and it was um, and Jim had had a brainwave uh, that we should go and visit X One with a film crew, um, just outside of Pittsburgh, and do a tour around their factory. We'd agreed to do it, and Jim had set the um, set set the wheels in motion with the film crew. Uh, and what my, the plan for me was to fly over to the US to spend some time in Orlando a day in the sunny Orlando, swimming in the pool, uh, and then fly up to uh, X1, fly back down, ready in time for rapid. Um, Jim, I'm going to blame all it on Jim. Uh, he he booked the flights and he said it's better to go to a place called uh, Latrobe. It's a small regional airport and it's closer to x1's headquarters in huntingdon than pittsburgh is the international airport so jim booked me flights with spirit airlines i'd never heard of them at the time but they kind of got this reputation as the ryanair of um the ryanair of the internal flights in america and you can see why um (laughs) 
So I get on this plane that's full of kids that are coming off the Disney cruise screaming because they don't want to go home. Uh, I land on a Sunday night in Latrobe. People get their bags. Everybody leaves. And I kind of, you know, just have this like idea as an international traveler that you just walk out of an airport. There's a taxi outside. Taxi will take you to your hotel. You can pay for it by card. It's fine. But Latrobe isn't, let me tell you, Latrobe is not like that. (laughs) So you fly into Latrobe. Um, came out of the airport there are no taxis i went back into the airport asked the security guard and he said oh you can use a payphone over there to phone a cab there's a number on there go and pick up the payphone uh, realized that i haven't got any cash on me i've only got a card go and try and find an atm there's no atm uh like in the midst of, in, in the middle of all this like that flight from spirit is landed on a sunday night it's the last one last flight into latrobe and it starts to close like a shop closes you just don't think of airports as closing like that. So I find myself like kind of on the curb wondering what I can do, trying to find taxi numbers on my phone, trying to get in touch with X1 to see if they knew anything, me to get a taxi, try to get in touch with the film crew who'd made their way to Pittsburgh sensibly and got to the hotel the night before. Uh, I went back in to speak to the security guard and he said, oh yeah, you're, it's Sunday night, you're not going to get a taxi around here. He said, my best advice is to go up the road, stand at the bus stop and wait for the Greyhound because the Greyhound bus will go past your hotel uh, on its way into Pittsburgh. So I walked up to a bus stop, um, waited for the Greyhound bus, got on, told the driver about my situation, tried to book a ticket online, you couldn't do that. Uh, and he said, okay, well, what I'll have to do is take you all the way into Pittsburgh so that you can pay for the, your ticket and then you can probably get a taxi back out from Pittsburgh. Uh, and he said, but to do that, because you're not paying for this journey, I need your passport. So to hand my passport over to this driver who's outside smoking a cigarette at the time, uh, get on this Greyhound bus, sat there, it's me on the Greyhound bus, the driver's off, and there was a couple of like youngish lads at the back and it felt like my old school days when I used to get bullied on the bus. So they come back, sit behind me and ask me to borrow my phone, uh, which I knew wasn't going to go well. So I didn't hand it over. So I got off the bus because I didn't like the way it was going. Got my passport back with the driver, walked back to the um, walked back to the airport, saw the security guard again. And he said, oh, there's a... And I said to him, is there a hotel around? Because you expect there to be a hotel at the airport. And he said, there's about a hotel about a mile up that way. So I start walking along the motorway in shorts and a t-shirt because it was sunny in Orlando. <laughs> the heavens opened. Uh, there's no sidewalk to walk along. Eventually get to this hotel, walk into the hotel, ask them in the hotel whether they could get me a taxi. Uh, they thought I was asking for a taxidermist. <laughs> I think they thought I'd been hunting or something out. Uh, they said, you're not going to get a taxi around here at this time of night. Uh, so I ended up staying at that hotel. For, so for that night, I had a hotel in Orlando, a hotel in Huntingdon, and a hotel in Latrobe. Um, and eventually, I got to Latrobe, Pittsburgh, the next day and filmed the next one, and that was really interesting. But that was just a small sample of what it was like traveling with me. It was horrendous. I always picked the wrong thing to do. I walked across um, an army base when I was in Brussels. I didn't mean to. I walked through a sewage works. You know, I, did, I didn't like to do the easy thing. I like to... Uh, from Hong Kong to Shenzhen, like to get a boat where a man picks up your luggage unbeknownst <laughs> to you and you just hope that it lands in Shenzhen. And it did. But yeah, I think um, the wrong way round is how I like to do some of my travel. Uh, but when it comes to stories and things that I've seen on my travels or people that I've spoken to, you know, I've been to Tokyo, I've been to Shenzhen, I've been to Shanghai, I've been to San Francisco. But one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done on the road was actually a lot closer to home and it was Berlin. Uh, I went to a conference there called Republica, which wasn't necessarily a 3D printing conference, but there was going to be 3D printing content at the conference. Uh, and I was interviewed, I managed to get an interview with Autodesk CTO at the time, Jeff Kowalski. And it was funny because it was the, the only time that I've done an interview in this industry where it felt like you were interviewing a movie star like one of those press junkets things. I was given a time slot in a ho- posh hotel, ushered into a waiting room, wait for my time slot, wait to go in and interview Jeff. And, you know, as soon as you got in there, he was really down to earth and he was really interesting. And I've constantly come back to that interview in my career. Um, Jeff talked about um, machine learning and what that meant, what that entailed in terms of 
for, for the 3D printing. And it was really interesting to, for him to talk about who was coming from this more software point of view, him to talk about this perfect storm of additive manufacturing can make the complex parts that um, the generative design can create and machine learning can create better generative design parts. And what the question I asked him there was about, you know, if this is the case, then what, what, and you were going to university, what is the career that you'd pick going forward? And he was talking about how that we're going to have to mentor the machines. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting examples he used was he was leaning back on his chair at the time. And he said that if you're an engineer and you go into design a chair perfectly into a, a generative design, you'll, you know, um, you'll design it to work perfectly under pressure so that when someone sits on it, it's the most perfect design possible. And someone else told me, I think Pat Dunn at a um, trade show, that I think the problem with perfection is that it's really close to failure. So what a chair is built, accident, how a chair is built accidentally is it's built to perform under torsion so that when you lean back on it, it doesn't crumble. So Jeff was talking to me about like how we go about telling the machines that these are the things that you have to consider. So I thought that was really interesting. It was one of those occasions where you speak to someone, which happens a lot in this industry. Um, you speak to someone, you realize that, wow, these are, this is a bona fide genius and they're completely above the level that I'm ever going to get to. And um, mm-hmm. it makes being a journalist fun in that kind of regard. Yeah, you mentioned before, Laura, we do have to cut through a lot of the marketing spiel and things. But when you do get to speak to someone like that, you really like sit and like, you just sit and you're wowed by them, I think. Mm-hmm. You've had similar experiences me with somebody like Friedran Kran. Being able to sit and interview Friedran Kran at a um, trade show is mm-hmm. one of the most enjoyable things that you could possibly do because you don't get any of that uh, hyperbole. You get real genius insight. And that's that's what I've enjoyed most about my travel in terms of my career is the like almost this like internationality of speaking to all of these different minds across the globe mm-hmm. and getting their opinions and trying to like steal them and pass them off as my own ones <laughs> so it makes all the uh, the travel mishaps worth it and by the way in your new job you're not going to be able to say the sentence oh i've been to tokyo shanghai and shenzhen without them just thinking you're flexing so yeah. <laughs> i'm going to try and avoid that as best as possible because um it is something i tend to do and my friends all roll their eyes every time i say oh yeah well when i was in tokyo <laughs> it was it's normally met with oh when i was in tokyo as a uh quick repost so i'm going to try to avoid that <laughs> um you were mentioning uh your stealing opinions there don um <laughs> asking you about your actual opinions um we we've been obviously talking off air um about the the kind of development of the industry um during your time here and i was, I was wondering whether you could um you know tell us from your perspective what what you think those biggest developments have, have been over the years I think that the flashy things that we've seen in terms of like, I don't know, I suppose carbon's a really good example of the, the, how quick this machine was and that how headline grabbing that was. But then what's actually good about carbon is the same thing as I think is good about the industry as a whole. It's this like everything around the technology is really developed. So design for additive manufacturing is a thing that, you know, that gets its own conference now. But, mm-hmm. you know, years ago, all you ever heard was an, in an interview was people need to change the way they think about design. I think that actually we've cracked that now and people do have, do think about design through additive manufacturing perspective. And I think that's really interesting. And I think that when I came into the industry, I remember even just on the desktop, desktop point of view, you could get AVS, ABS or PLA. You couldn't get any of these materials and like, what we see now with carbon for instance and as i said it's the materials portfolio for them that's really impressive is you know henkel coming to help them develop their materials now um so all of the things that surround the technologies have made it a lot better one in particular for me is the automation of post-processing i don't think that we'd see any mass manufacturing products without that automation of post-processing that's coming through the likes of Dimension or Post Pro, and certainly for that for the SLS regard, it's it's you know it's opened up whole new worlds. We can see Chanel competing with inject competing, allowing SLS to compete with injection molding technologies for them to make up a, a makeup brush, and 
so I think that like, and I, I saw this in action actually. I went to see um, Matt Sora in Leicestershire. That's not a flex, is it? Leicestershire. It's not that far away. <laughs> okay. um, and they were just talking to me about how that they were doing some little giveaways for the factory tours for their open house that they were doing. Um, and they talked to me about how they were 3D printing these parts on a multi-jet fusion machine, which we all know when it came out was all singing, all dancing. It was really fast, really quick. But um, the, the operator at the time said to me, I couldn't have done this, this giveaway of these parts. And they were just little key rings without the post-processing because yeah. I would have had to manually sit with every single part and clean it. And this is just, I can just take a load and chuck them in this machine. It tumbles them and I've got a, part, a suitable part to give away out of it. And I think that, like, so it, it's like the at either end of the scale of the 3D printer. We've seen great incremental improvements in the 3D printers over the year. But, you know, if you actually look at Carbon's technology, they've, you know, added the membrane under a DLP machine. But the fundamental aspects of the machine is that it's using a light to cure resin, which is what... Um, chuckle was doing in 1983 so those like little incremental innovations have been great but for me it's just everything surrounding the technology materials design and post-process a word from our sponsors ultimaker ultimaker are a manufacturer of desktop extrusion based 3d printers that can help streamline your workflow and save you time and money. Ultimaker printers offer industrial grade material options backed by an extensive materials alliance program and they're also paired with trusted Cura slicing software which recently surpassed a milestone of 2 million users. For the decade in the additive manufacturing industry, Ultimaker machines have been used by a wide range of industrial customers for a range of applications. For more info, click the link in the description or visit mytct.co forward slash ultimakerpod. I know Sam said earlier that you know we were talking about this before we even got on this this call today and I don't know whether this is a case of like when when you buy a car and you suddenly you feel like you see that car a million times over on, on the road but every interview I've had this week seems to have come out with that same conclusion that the reason why the industry is where it is is because of those advancements in kind of like the automation of post-processing and how that really has helped with um with kind of ramping up mass production so like am flow who i was talking to earlier they're working on automation of kind of any bits of the post-process side of the technology and i was i was speaking to a well i guess what was kind of a, a smallish a medical device manufacturer yesterday um, um anovis and they were saying that they've got an sls printer and if it wasn't for the fact that they'd come up with their own post-processing steps after that that they wouldn't be able to do this as efficiently so that it's really that that's helped them ramp things up and i just thought it's kind of nice that you you sort of ended your your last couple of weeks with that point and how a lot of people seem to be going with that way of thinking now, unless it's another stolen opinion. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a stolen opinion. But, you know, what can I do about that? I think that, you know, I think that you can, you can evidence that by just going to a trade show because, mm-hmm. you know, we've been working with the SME on this, like, uh, this we, we've called it the pillars of Rapid Plus TCT and it's, business design materials process quality and post-processing and it's kind of like which of these do you fit into then i think when you go to a trade show i would say i don't know you probably can guess better than me but what a quarter of the exhibitors are only showing are oems that manufacture pre-printers perhaps even less mm-hmm. uh i think that it's the industry has been built about all of the things that are surrounding those that technology now mm-hmm I'm going to ask you to put maybe not your cynical hat back on for a second, but uh, maybe just kind of your your reality hat. Um, Anything that you thought was going to maybe happen in your time in the industry that maybe hasn't materialised in the way that you thought it might, or maybe something that you thought was going to happen that you now think slightly differently about or have got another take on? So I think the, the, the easy answer to this is that in 2014 at CES, we saw the rise of the, it wasn't just a 3D printer in every home, it was a 3D printer in every room, and that was propagated by 3D Systems and Avi Reichenthal, who, you know, had managed to, a great coup and bring in uh, Will I Am for marketing purposes in. And I think that everybody in the industry thought at the time, well, maybe there's a potential in this. And um, 
you know, that market has not materialized in, in the way that anybody thought it was. Nobody sells consumer 3D printers anymore as a consumer 3D printer. That's like a printer that you buy in um, Curry's or, you know, Best Buy or something like that, like a HP or an Epson printer. But that doesn't mean to say that I don't think that market exists. Because mm-hmm. in my opinion, I remember going to see a Phil Reeves um, a Phil Reeves talk at that very CES, and he said that when a 3D printer is below the price of an Xbox, then you know that it's made this made the splash of for the consumer market. And and it, you know, it absolutely has. You can get a 3D printer now on a Chinese website for a hundred dollars and it'll work. And I think that what hasn't materialized is that the need for it in the home. But that market of if you want a 3D printer, you can buy one. And the people that want 3D printers are hobbyists um, and they're, they're makers and they're, they're the people that you kind of expect to want a 3D printer. They're the people that build custom PCs. They're not the people who buy Xboxes. Mm-hmm. And I think that what's interesting about that market to me is that I feel like it's kind of like split and we kind of don't, you know, they are, it is kind of ignored a little bit by the, the wider industry as a whole. It's like almost scoffed at a little bit to see these hundred dollar printers but it still really interests me because i think if you go onto the community on reddit it's got like over the subreddit it's like a a million members and if you see something like the midwest rap rep rap fair you'll see huge numbers of uh, visitors attending that i think there's like this real passion behind that and i think that those passions still leak into the industry now and, mm-hmm. and an example i use of that is that e3d's tool changer which is something that stems from the rep rap community um you know we're going to see that on the i think the desktop metal carbon machine is it called carbon or is it called fiber the desktop metal fiber machine so those little changes that are made in that community do do sometimes come into our the bigger industry community i just think that the you know the margins aren't there for instance and it is all about industry and obviously we see you know, we, we've talked for years about HP unlocking the $12 trillion manufacturing industry over the, you know, whatever it is, $9 billion 3D printing industry. So that market hasn't materialized the way that we, that the industry perhaps thought it might, but I think it's still there. Um, I don't think anybody's buying, I mean, because people buy, aren't buying 2D printers for their home anymore. Mm-hmm. It's so, it's just a, I always thought of that as, and I still get asked by people now, from more so now, sorry, from outside of the 3D printing circle, if I can help them to 3D print something. It happened two weeks ago. My brother-in-law was building something from Ikea uh, and he needed a slight extension to one of the brackets and he searched for it on the internet and he found a Thingiverse file and asked me if I could 3D print it for him. I can't because I'm rubbish at 3D printing things, but they, that... Like, I still think that exists and that will still rumble on. Um, what I've always been interested in and something that's like um, the, a project that I've never quite finished or started, I suppose, is I'm really interested to, to talk about, like, the, the machines that have never materialized over my time. Um, I can name a lot uh, of them. One of the really ones that if you search back on TCT Magazine, um, you can find a machine called the David. And I really liked the idea behind the David. That was a Kickstarter project. Um, and it was this idea that you would put master batch pellets into the top as opposed to filaments. And it would it would uh, grind down and make the part without the requirement of filament. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you see that on the bigger, like, WAM machines now. But you don't see that on the desktop side of it. Um and you know we had uh, 3D systems at that CES had the Cube Jet, which you know I remember Todd Grimm telling me at the time that if they can find a way to make the Z Corp um, machine sub five thousand dollars, then they're onto a winner. Um, and you know that that obviously the margins weren't in that to make a profit from it, so it didn't ever materialize properly. Um, and I think the desktop SLS is still this like. We still kind of don't see this big explosion of it as everybody expected. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's, but the, but the industry is littered with these, um, you know, almost failed 3D printers. It's not just this, like, it just wasn't just in the peak period. I remember talking to a guy called Bill Masters, 
who is one of the most interesting people I've ever spoken to in my life. And when I spoke to him, he said uh, he said he was an inventor at heart. And at this moment in time, the current project he was working on is because he was an 80 year old man was working on a way to get himself off of the toilet quicker. Um, so that's what he was doing at the time. But he created something called ballistic particle manufacturing, which he, um, the analogy he used for that was it was like taking a straw from McDonald's, chewing up the paper and spitting it through the tube, and then you'd plop that out. So you'd like fire these little particles and you'd build up this part. And the, when you see the parts from it, they don't look any different from parts that we see on FDM machines now, but this is the early 90s, late 80s we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So you know, I think one of your favorite missteps, let's say, in the Kickstarter history, Laura, and mine is Peachy Printer. <laughs> uh, this $99 printer that launched that didn't ever materialize. But the reason it's funny is because, not because people lost lots of money, uh, that's not funny at all, but the ridiculous um, YouTube videos that Kickstarter updates that their guy, Ryan, I forget his second name, um, Ryan put up they were like these really like like he'd watched um a netflix crime drama and tried to recreate it on a uh a little camera by himself he'd he did this like really like bar baroque piano music in the background uh these like recordings of how his um co-founder had stole the money and built a house and it was really interesting but it was ridiculous um, and it, it always makes me smile whenever I think about those YouTube videos. And I would love for you to put in the uh, description for this episode, Laura, a link to those because that is still one of my favourite things that's ever happened in the industry, despite the fact that that was particularly negative. I, I definitely will. And it's it was funny when I was going through um, some of the older articles, just looking through kind of like the archives and the amount of companies that I just didn't recognise. I that clearly weren't even really doing anything just a year after I, I started and there was just so many and there really is this kind of graveyard of, of projects that started and never really like, like came to anything but that's why it's really good to be able to see the ones that did and just the, the strides that they're still making in the industry now I mean on the on the industrial side of things something that, that you kind of cite quite a lot is the fact that we still talk about um, one of the biggest industrial applications being the G leap fuel nozzle. And that's from, if I can't remember what, what year it was now when, when that came out, but that we still think we haven't really moved on that much since then. I mean, did you expect us to have, have moved on at this point? Did you expect to see more of those kinds of applications now? I think that that application in particular, um, the leap fuel nozzle was so ahead of its time Um that GE quickly pounced on it and kind of took up the whole of the industry. I mean, I mm -hmm. think I remember a stat at the time when GE acquired Morris Technologies. I think they acquired half, by doing so, I think they acquired half of the metal additive manufacturing machines in the US, just in that one wow. file swoop. So I think that kind of like almost not set the industry back. Um, that's the wrong thing to say because it really did validate the industry as well. But it kind of like, it was a validation for the industry, but the industry wasn't there to be validated. Um, mm -hmm. But what I think is interesting is that I, I think it was IMTS, the last IMTS, uh, I spoke to Chris Schultz, who was working on that project at the time um, from GE Aviation. Uh, and he said to me that like at the time when that was around, you could have said there was like a handful of applications being developed. And it just so happened that of that handful, the leap fuel nozzle was one of them. And it became this huge story because it was so successful but he said you can i tell you now that the, that there is hundreds of these applications being worked on and it takes a long time to get a metal, metal additive manufacturing part validated we know this especially mm -hmm. for aerospace and for medical um so while i think that that i think that that leap fuel nozzle was hugely ahead of its time um but i do sort of expect to see this like explosion of those kind of um technologies and applications again in the not too distant future i think we've probably been a little bit hampered by um covid19 um we've gone through 40 minutes here and not mentioned that so sorry um to bring it up but like obviously the aerospace sector where that where all of the development is is without metal additive manufacturing has been hit a little bit so that might be a slight backward step but 
I do think that metal additive manufacturing will have this, um, we'll start to see more applications for it. I think that's something like the i8 Roadster on the BMW. Um, we couldn't get through 40 minutes without you mentioning that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but even even that's a validation, but that's not really a cost validation. That's just a validation of its proof that we can do it. And I think that, you know, we all know that this industry in the, specifically the metal sides works quite slowly towards that, but we're getting there. And I do think that if you separate out the the plastics and the metals, plastics is 10, 15 years older than the metals is. And it stands to reason that they are 10, 15 years ahead of that. So when we look at applications like the Chanel one, um, it's understandable that that's been, it's taken this long to get to that point. And I think that it's the same with metal. I think it's just that the processes, we lump them in as the same industry, but really there are two things that are going to, that metal will eventually catch up there. And I do think that, again, that will be the surrounding technologies. And we do already see some really good uh, applications coming out of the, you know, single point laser um, post-processing of metals, for instance. And uh, finally, Dan, um, are, there, are there any are there any trends or, or final thoughts on the on the future of the industry going forward? And um, since you're leaving, uh, do you care? Yeah, I do care. Um, I think like I'm obviously moving into culture and heritage, and some of my favourite stories in the past have been about culture and heritage. Kew Gardens, the Pagoda Dragon springs to mind. Although when I look back on the actual uh, article I did of that, I did, really didn't do it justice. Uh, probably just didn't have the time, maybe, but uh, it was one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen. That, and I think that you know, it's been mentioned to me on LinkedIn several times when I announced that I was leaving. That there is a big, um, there's lots of applications for 3D printing in culture and heritage, and I do kind of hope to see them in um, at the museum. But in terms of like final thoughts, I don't. I'll try not to end on like a downer, but I do think that. We will start to see some consolidation in the industry. I think there's too many uh, metal AM manufacturers, for starters, for the amount of uh, work there is that out there. But I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think that it's just an industry that's finding its feet. I've mentioned a few times about how I believe that SLS has um, you know, kind of found its feet now in mass manufacturing. And I think that we will start to see, hopefully, the fruits of the labor of the binder jet, the metal binder jet and technologies. I think that one thing that coronavirus has shown us as well is that the technologies are very adept at scaling up very quickly and very fast to make things that people didn't know that previously possible. And I do think that we're trying to like, there is a slow gradual process in times of the world, you know, the wider manufacturing world about what 3D printing can do for them. Um, but I do like I find it really I found it really interesting that the last conference that I ever went to before lockdown, Leonardo Helicopters said that they weren't going to go over how they do jigs and fixtures and prototyping because that's just normal for them. And I think that's the best validation of the industry can have that it's got to the point where it is boring and it's normal to make jigs and fixtures and to save this amount of money. I think that we'll get to a point where nobody talks about saving that amount of money because that just won't be the way that anybody does it, because it doesn't make sense to do it that way. I think that one of the things that has, like really interests me, another stolen opinion from Phil Reeves, <laughs> is that I, I think we can all sit and do a cost analysis of 3D printing and say, oh, I'm not sure it covers the cost. But it only doesn't cover the cost when everything goes to plan. And coronavirus is an example of that. When something doesn't go to plan, 3D printing can step in, and that is absolutely priceless for a manufacturing industry for to be able to say, we've got this on that, we've got this car on the line, we haven't printed the armrest. What are we gonna do? The supply has gone under. Well, we can 3D print it and have it done. You can't put a cost on that because it's you know, it 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 enables you to carry on regardless. And I think that 3D printing's often tried to like touch on this like bridge manufacturing thing, especially in the oil and gas industry where they long lead times for replacement parts and 3D printing can have it done and there in a day. And I don't think that that is an industry to be sniffed at in any way, shape or form. I think that the ability to 3D printing to keep manufacturing going is absolutely astronomical. So I think that, 
you know, for you guys and for editors, it's probably going to be, it can't, it might become more difficult to find new and interesting applications when they do become boring. But then a sense that that is kind of you, that TCT as a whole has done its job and the job was to accelerate the additive manufacturing industry. And I think that we'll get to a point where we've done that. These are the boring things and these are the things that we're going to move on to now next. I think that was a perfect way to end this, Dan. Was it though, Laura? No, I don't know. It, it's like you rehearsed it. I'm not sure if you did. I didn't actually rehearse that. It was genuinely off the top of my head. Yeah, to be fair, to be fair, we did just throw that at you. So, And we will carry on regardless, as you said, as the industry can carry on regardless with 3D printing. We will carry on. You will carry on without us. But thank you very much for taking the time this afternoon to run us through kind of a this is your life of 3D printing, really, without the Red Bull. And can I just add one final thing? You can add any final thoughts you like, yes. That I am only, like, I'm leaving and I've been uh, overwhelmed with, like, the well wishes and stuff, but... I kind of touched on it before that, you know, TCT is not about me. And actually, I haven't got a clue anymore about 3D printing. I've not really been, I've, I've spent six months working on a uh, project for another project for the brand TCT. And like the industry is in the hands of you, you two, you, Sam and Laura, who've been, who've absolutely astronomically helped my career along. And I think that TCT is in the best hands possible. Thank you very much, Dan. I'll, we'll go and cry off her in a second. You do that. <laughs> and thank you for, for giving us jobs in the first place. Me and Sam have to say that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> right, well, thank you very much. And we're, we're saying goodbye like it's the last time I'm going to speak to you. We've still got another week of you left. You have. Not that time <laughs> this goes out, though. True. This Well, it's going to go out on his very last day so that everybody can join in the sadness with us. Yeah. Oh, isn't that nice? It is very nice of us, yes. <laughs> right, thanks, guys. And thank you very much for listening to Additive Insight. If you like what you hear, you can hear more uh, by subscribing at tctmagazine.com and find us on all of your favourite podcast platforms, so Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, all those kinds of places. So thank you very much, and we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>